If you please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, we're going to be looking at chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. John 12, 12 through 26. And today is Palm Sunday, and as our tradition, on Palm Sunday and on Easter Sunday, we, we take a break from our normal sermon series. We're going to take a break from 1 Corinthians, and we're going to follow the church calendar. Palm Sunday is the, the day that we remember the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the true king of his people. And the triumphal entry is only a few days before Passover. So Jerusalem is filled with pilgrims. And earlier, just a few days earlier in the town of Bethany, just a short distance away, Jesus had done his most spectacular miracle to date. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, a man who had been in the grave for four days. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus is at the peak of his popularity. But these people who cheered for Jesus, who waved palm branches, who declared him to be their king, they had absolutely no idea what Jesus had come to do. They had no idea what his message was, what he was about. Because just in five days, these same crowds, these same crowds who are cheering him, who are blessing him as their king, would be cursing him, would be shouting, crucify him. So John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. Hear now the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowds that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this gospel message. Father, we thank you for the message of the triumphal entry. And Lord, we pray that you will give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Give us what was lacking even in the disciples on this day. Father, that we may see Christ, that he may be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you're like me, but I've found that the the longer I live the more I realize that this world just is not my home. The longer I live, the more I realize that this world just can't satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. 
Now, don't get me wrong. This life is wonderful. It's, it's filled with great joys and, and rich meaning and, and thrilling adventure. But there's always something missing. Always something missing. At the end of the day, these joys, these meaning, this adventure just can't satisfy, just can't complete us. And this realization will either lead us to despair and depression or it will lead us to self-deception. It will lead us to an endless searching for that elusive meaning, a meaning we may get brief glimpses of but seems to be just beyond our reach. We hope that maybe our next vacation or our next relationship or our next career move or our next purchase will give us that satisfaction for our deepest longings. But the truth is, for the Christian, this world is not our home. And no matter how much we try, no matter how much we want it to be different, the true believer will always feel something of a a misfit as an outsider in this world. We feel out of place. In the words of, of one of my favorite country singers, the late John Prine, he said, you feel just like Sunday on a Saturday afternoon. And that's how we often feel. And when this happens to us, and it happens to all of us, do not think that there's something wrong with you. Don't get discouraged. Don't despair. Recognize that our pain, our discomfort with this earthly life is not abnormal, as unpleasant as it is. But rather, it is a sign. It is a sign that we were meant for more than this world. In fact, the opposite should really concern us. If we feel too at home in this fallen world, if we love this life too much, if we, if we don't yearn for heaven, if we don't yearn to be with Jesus in glory, this should be a warning sign to us. A warning sign that perhaps we are so comfortable with this world is because we don't belong to Jesus. We do belong to this world and not to Christ. And in this passage, Jesus provides instructions on how to live in this tension. But before we look at these instructions, we need to look at the three different types of people that are mentioned in this passage. And we need to look at their individual attitudes towards Jesus during this triumphal entry and recognize that these same attitudes that we see here exist toward Jesus today. And these three different types of people mentioned in Jesus' triumphal triumphal entry are first, the disciples, second, the crowd, and third, the Pharisee. And none of these three types, they really understood. None of them at that time understood Jesus' true purpose. Some were closer than others, but each of them really missed Jesus' fundamental purpose for coming. And what these three groups do have in common is that all of them had the same misunderstanding of Jesus' purpose in the triumphal entry. And we have discussed this misunderstanding, I think, each Palm Sunday over the years since I've been here at Northgate. And this misunderstanding was simple. It's that the people thought Jesus was coming to be a political leader. They thought he was going to free the Jewish people from Roman subjugation. They were looking for a worldly leader to make them what they once were, a great and powerful nation. But this wasn't Jesus' purpose. Jesus came to do so much more than what they were expecting. And in these three groups, we see similarities to this attitude about Jesus today. We see people today have these same attitudes. And we see these same different reactions to Jesus again today. So let's look at this first group, the disciples. And this includes the 12 apostles. But it also contains a wider group, all, the, all of Jesus' followers, all of those who listened to Jesus, all who followed his teachings. And there was varying degrees of faith and, and commitment among these disciples. 
There were false believers like Judas. But most of the disciples, they truly loved Jesus. They truly believed in Jesus, even if they didn't understand his divine mission. And we have a description of the disciples in verse 16. It said, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. See, the disciples, despite their their time with Jesus, despite their devotion to Jesus, they didn't understand Jesus' message. They didn't understand Jesus' mission. They didn't understand the, the prophecies about Jesus and how they were fulfilled in Jesus, and how Jesus fulfilled the scripture. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They didn't understand until Jesus was glorified, until the Holy Spirit was given to them. Then, then their eyes were open. Their eyes were supernaturally open to understand Jesus' message, to understand the gospel. See, they believed in Jesus. They loved Jesus. They loved his teaching. But what they did is they still sought they, they still thought that his kingdom was of this world. And it wasn't until after, when the Holy Spirit's illumination opened their eyes, that they understood that Jesus didn't come to free them from, the, from slavery to Rome. No, much more. Jesus came to free them from slavery to sin. His kingdom was not a temporary kingdom of the world, but it was an eternal kingdom, a eternal kingdom with him in glory. See, Jesus' purpose was qualitatively different than what these people expected. And there are many Christians today, and some of them are truly converted, but, but many are not, that fall into this category. They may love Jesus, or at least the Jesus that they, they think what Jesus is. And they want to follow Jesus, at least again, how they understand Jesus. But they don't really understand what it means to love Jesus. doesn't understand what it means to follow Jesus. They can't see beyond this world. Their thinking is worldly. They understand the gospel as applying only to this world. To these people, the Christian life is is a guarantee of happiness, a guarantee of freedom, a guarantee that there will be no trials, no troubles whatsoever, and nothing more. These are the people who are attracted to the prosperity gospel. Jesus wants me to have my best life now. Jesus wants me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, and and have great relationships now. It's all about now to these people. There's little, if any, thought about eternity. Now, of course, there is some truth to this. For the most part, loving God, following his law, will bring us temporal happiness. Because sin brings misery. Rebellion against God has natural and and unpleasant consequences. But the worldly benefit of the gospel, this is really only the tip of the iceberg. The true benefits of the gospel are spiritual. The true benefits are eternal. See, in the long run, godliness will always bring us the most joy. But in the short run, in the short run, being faithful to God oftentimes will bring mighty difficulties to us. And many well-intentioned Christians, they focus solely on the worldly benefits of the Christian life, which are real. There's no doubt about it. And in their evangelism and and trying to bring people to Christ, they wonder why they have little effect. And Ray Comfort gave a a great video explanation of this. He used an analogy of being on a commercial airline flight. And you know how they hand out peanuts and, and drinks? Well, on this flight, they were offering parachutes to people. And they were telling them, if you wear this parachute, It'll make the flight much more enjoyable for you. So the person puts the parachute on, and they're realizing that it's not very comfortable. They're sitting, they can't get comfortable in the seat. 
And then other people take the parachute off, and people are making fun of the guy who's wearing the parachute. And soon he realized that he's not having a better flight with this parachute. People are mocking him for wearing it. So he concludes the parachute's worthless, and he takes it off. He rejects it. But what if they were told that the plane was damaged, and the plane could not land, and this parachute is the only way that you're going to survive this trip? That's a different story. You're going to put that parachute on quick, and you don't care how miserable you are, because you know that it will, it will save you. Well, that's the thing about the gospel. There certainly are temporal benefits of the gospel. But that's the primary. The primary benefit is that it is the only means to save us from eternal destruction. It is the only means to bring peace between a holy God and a rebellious, sinful people. That is the primary thing of the gospel. All the things that we have here, all the benefits, which are real, they're just the tip of the iceberg. They're nothing in comparison to the eternal benefit. And yes, many people can live a happy life apart from Christ. Many might even be happier than most Christians. But apart from Christ, eternity will be unspeakably horrible. So this is the first group, the disciples. The second group of people in this passage is the crowd. Now, unlike the disciples, the crowd really has no particular attraction to Jesus himself or any interest in his teachings. What gets the crowd's attention is Jesus' power. It's his miraculous signs. And the crowd is, is described in, in verses 17 and 18. It said, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. And the sign was Jesus. Or Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days. And I love it the way the, the King James put, puts it in there. He's been in there four days. He stinketh. Well, yeah, he would have stinketh after that time. But Jesus raised this man who was really dead. His body was starting to decay. And this got their attention. They were attracted by Jesus' power. Right? What better person to lead them against the Romans than a person who has the ability to raise someone from the dead? He has superhuman power, supernatural power. It was, like, it was like he was Superman. What better person to have as your leader than someone who could raise the dead? That's what they were looking for. And like the disciples, the crowd was looking only at the worldly benefits that Jesus can provide. Where the disciples, they, they actually loved Jesus and they loved his teaching. The crowd was really ambivalent toward Jesus' teaching. Jesus' uh, teaching were irrelevant at best. It was the miracles and the power that they sought. It was the crowd that, that turned on Jesus and shouted, crucify him. Only a few days later, when they realized that Jesus' power would not personally help them achieve their worldly ambition, uh, achieve freedom from the Romans. And today, the crowd are the people who are attracted to the church and to Christianity, not for, for love of Christ, not because they believe in him, but rather because they want to look for what's in it for them. What is a benefit they can get? These are the people who go to church because that's what good people do. They want to appear to be a good person. Or they go to church to make business contacts or to be entertained, hear lively music and an inspirational talk. And sadly, many ministers fall into this category. Right? If you have charisma and you're a good public speaker, it's a great gig. And if you're really good, you might even be able to, to wear $5,000 sneakers and hang out with celebrities and be interviewed by Oprah. But as soon as a Christian teaching goes out of favor with the world, they'll quickly condemn it, figuratively shout at Scripture 
and at Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. So this is the second group. This is the crowd. The last group that we see in this passage is the Pharisees. And these are the people who hate Jesus, and and, and they openly oppose Jesus. To them, Jesus was, was a personal threat to them, a threat to their power. See, the, the Pharisees, along with the Sadducees, or the high priests, they were the religious leaders. These were the people who were in positions of power and privilege, and they were directly threatened by Jesus' triumphal entry. And while they were Jewish, they remained in power mainly because of the Romans. See, the Romans were the ones who put... They, they were basically puppets for the Romans. And the Romans really had only one requirement of these leaders. They didn't care about the others. They didn't care about how they treated the people. They cared for one thing, keep the people quiet and keep them peaceful. That was the only requirement for them to stay in power. Any hint of rebellion or insurrection would be met with unmerciful brutality. And the crowds and the palms and the hosannas, this created an unstable and a dangerous situation in the eyes of the Pharisees. And while the the reaction to Jesus' triumphal entry was for the disciples uh, really a misunderstanding of what it was, and for the crowds it it was sinful fascination, the reaction of the Pharisees was one really of sinful frustration. Frustration. And we see this in verse 19. It said, verse 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. See, the Jewish leaders were attempting to shut down Jesus. They did not want a, a conflict with Romans. And, and G, right after Jesus had, had raised Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they conspired to kill Jesus. We read in John chapter 11, verses uh, 47 and 48. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, Where are we, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, during the triumphal entry, they realized that their plans to stop Jesus had failed, and they were frustrated because these plans failed. See, Jesus is God. Jesus is sovereign. And it's utter foolishness to think that we can oppose him. Any plans against Jesus will always be frustrated. And even if we, we do get, for, for a time, we get what we think we want, we'll realize that what we meant for evil, God always meant for good. God will take our actions and use our own actions if we are his enemies to achieve his purposes. And today, today the Pharisees are represented by those who oppose God. All those who openly and, and blatantly defy the sovereign God of the universe. And what they really want to do is they want to make themselves to be God. They want to prop themselves up to be their own sovereign. And those who despise God's word and and oppose his people, they are destined, they are destined to be frustrated. Frustrated now and frustrated for all eternity. And think about the anger and the hatred that we see in those who oppose God. And this hatred represents really the utter frustration they feel at their impotence in, in response to God's omnipotence. And this can be most clearly seen Really in the demonic frenzy shown right now by those in our culture, those who are in the culture of death against the possibility that the Supreme Court may overturn the, that evil Roe versus Wade decision. And Kathy Sherman, our, our faithful prayer warrior from Ohio, she is frequently outside abortion clinics praying. And she has talked about having people throw water, water bottles at her, curse at her, spit at her. 
Even one person was shooting air pellets at their signs and at them. All of this is signs of the frustration that they feel. And all three of these groups, the disciples, the crowd, the Pharisees, though they have different motivations and different views toward Jesus, all of them miss the main point about Jesus. And what was true of them is also true many times in many of us, the modern equivalents. And each of these groups, they need, the, the only way to see it correctly is we need a supernatural encounter with the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus explains what this transformation looks like in his response to this question to the Greeks that we see in verses 23 to 26. But before we look at this, uh, Jesus' words, it's important to recognize who it is that's actually asking these questions. They were Greeks. So why is it important that Greeks ask these questions? Well, the three groups that we've been looking at so far, the disciples, the crowds, and the Pharisees, they were all Jewish. And what that means is they were all part of God's covenant people. Now, while they were far from God, they were disobedient to his law, God still had a relationship with them. God still would show them grace. But this wasn't the case for those who were outside the covenant. See, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He was the king of the Jews. He came to save God's covenant people. But now we see the inclusion of the Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jews. And this is showing the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan. A plan that was announced to Abram at the initiation of God's covenant with him. And we even saw that, those of you who were in the Sunday school this morning, we saw it talking about Abraham and the covenant. God said to Abraham in, in Genesis 12:3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And while the three groups that we're looking at, they were all Jewish, they were all looking for a Jewish worldly king, God's plan was to provide so much more. God's plan was to provide a spiritual kingdom. And it will, it will be future. In the future, it will be physical. But now it's a spiritual kingdom. And this kingdom would not include just one people, not just the Jewish people, but it will include all peoples, all people groups from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation. So it's fitting that the Greeks ask Jesus the question that prompts this response. And let's look at Jesus' words in verses 23 through 26. Now, verse 23, where Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This would probably not be very unexpected for them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is the Son of Man. They, they may be thinking, these groups may be thinking the triumphal entry is where Jesus is going to be glorified as being the worldly leader to lead this revolt against the Romans and taking his throne. But that's not at all. In fact, the, the way of thinking was too small when compared to what Jesus has in mind. See, the Son of Man is the, the primary way that Jesus refers to himself. Many people mistakenly think that the Son of Man refers to Jesus' humanity, as contrasted with the, the Son of God. So, he, so in his humanity, he's the Son of Man. In his de deity, he's the Son of God. But no, it's actually a reference to Jesus' deity. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this, Daniel 7. It says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, this is God the Father, and was presented to him, and to him and to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, when Jesus said, now is the time that the Son of Man would be glorified, they had no idea what he was talking about. Jesus is not talking about taking this small little insignificant city in this obscure region of the Roman Empire at one small part in history. No, Jesus is talking about an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will never pass away, a kingdom that could never be destroyed. See, in reality, this glory is, is nothing new for Jesus. Jesus always had glory. He's the, he's the second person of the Trinity. This dominion he had since the dawn of time. What's new? What is unique here? Is that this specific time, Jesus is going to redeem fallen mankind. So he's not only going to have the glory of the sovereign, he's going to have the glory of the redeemer. He will be praised by a saved people. A people who will voluntarily, freely praise him from every time, tribe, tongue, nation, language. Not just the conquered people who are, who are justly condemned for their cosmic treason and rebellion against Almighty God. No, they are going to freely be worshiping him. This is the difference. But it's this next part of what Jesus said that would have truly been baffling to all those present at the triumphal entry. And it's this next part that I think is truly baffling to all natural man throughout the ages. And I think this next part represents the difference between the one who is carnal and the one who is spiritual. And this here we see the answer. The answer to these three groups who've missed why Jesus came, what he was doing. And this is really the answer to us when we realize that, that we will never find ultimate fulfillment, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate joy in anything in this life. And we see it in verse 24 where it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this verse really has two applications. Primarily, this verse is talking about Jesus himself. See, unless Jesus dies as an atonement for the sins of his people, unless Jesus dies the death that, that we are unable to die as, as he dies as our substitute, unless Jesus lives the life of perfect obedience to God the Father, which we couldn't do, again, as our substitute, not a single person can be saved. Not a single person can be reconciled with God. And hence, Jesus would be that grain of wheat that remains alone. Jesus would be still be the sovereign king, but he would have no subjects. No one would be worshiping him freely. But when Jesus dies on the cross, which at this point is only a few days away, then through his death, Jesus will bear much fruit. And that fruit, what is that fruit? That fruit is us. Us, we are his fruit. The people who are washed and cleansed by his blood. The people who are transformed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to become a new creation in Christ, united to Christ. Then, and only then, can we understand Jesus' mission. Then and only then can we understand his divine purpose. And this verse is primarily about Jesus, but it's not solely about Jesus. It also applies to us who are new creations in Christ. See, we are that grain of wheat that must die. Die to this world. Die to ourselves. Die to our fleshly, worldly thinking in order to be raised anew with Christ and with his mind, to have his mind, to have his way of thinking. We see this in Romans chapter 6, where it says that we are united to Christ in his death. We are then united with Christ in his resurrection. We die with Christ and we are raised with Christ. And when we do this, and only when we do this, that we live for Christ. Only then can we bear much fruit. So what does it look like? 
Well, we see it fleshed out in the next verse, in verse 25. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And this is a paradox. This is a, a paradox that was not seen by the disciples on Palm Sunday as they looked to Jesus to set up this earthly kingdom. This is a paradox that was not seen by the crowd when they sought to exploit Jesus' power for their own worldly ends. And it's a paradox not seen by the Pharisees as they thought that they could directly oppose Jesus and his word for their political gain. And it's a paradox that's missed today. Missed today when we so often attempt to emulate these past strategies. See, it says if we love this world system, if we love the things that oppose God, if we seek to make this fallen creation our home and, and to exploit it for our own selfish ends, if we do that, we will lose our lives. We may prosper in the short run. We may, we may even prosper our entire lives. We may die with the most toys and think somehow we have won, only to find that we have made an unspeakably horrible mistake. And Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And this is what we do when we love this world. And Jesus goes on to say in this verse, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever hates his life in this world. This seems strong, doesn't it? Jesus certainly can't mean what he said. Does he really mean that we must hate our lives in this world? Yes, that's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus means. And many of us are, are, are like the misunderstanding disciples. And we think that the Christian life is only for the here and now. And we make plans to maximize our enjoyment in this life for this short period of time. And we give almost no thought whatsoever to maximizing eternity. And this is what we are to hate. We are to hate the short-term view that thinks it's all about me, that thinks it's all about now. We are to hate this thinking. It is not about us. It is about God. It is about his glory. And we are called to be lowly. We are called to be like Jesus. We are to hate self-promotion. We are to hate self-promotion, sadly, that is so often found in the church. It's not all about me. It's not all about us. It's not all about our church or our denomination or our numbers. It is only about Christ. And we are to hate this worldly way of thinking that is so infested even the Christian thinking. And some will say, you really can't mean that. We've got to be practical. We have to make some compromise, right? We can't be too extreme. No. No, we are not called to be practical. We don't have to be practical. We have to be faithful. We have to hate practical worldly thinking. And my friends, this, this life, our time, our talents, our treasures, this is the raw material. The raw material with which we invest, not in this world, but we invest for eternity. And we must hate all those temptations And we all have them. Those temptations to build our own kingdom, to build our own glory. We must decrease. Christ alone must increase. And we must hate our our selfish, fallen pride that looks to this world to measure our value and our joy. Because this world is deceitful. It promises what it can never provide. And verse 26 shows us the outcome of our obedience. It shows us the result of hating this life. It says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. 
See, my friends, if we want to be a true Christian, not a pretender looking to Christ, not for who he is, but what he can do for us in this world, if we want to be a true Christian, we must follow Christ. We must follow Christ in dying to this world, hating this world with its fallen, prideful system, looking to eternity, looking to glory, looking to the time, longing for the time when we will no longer have these sinful, fallen desires and we will be the way God created us to be, the way God intended us to be. And because of Christ, we will one day be. And if we do this, if this is our longing, if this is the true longing of our heart, we can take comfort. We can take joy. Because we see the last verse of this, the last part of this verse. And this is a truth that is promised to us. Take a look at the last part of this verse. It says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Just let that sink in. If anyone serves me, if anyone serves Christ, the Father will honor him. My friends, this is the answer. This is the answer to our heart's cry. This is the answer to our ultimate satisfaction. This is the answer to our ultimate joy, ultimate meaning. It can never originate in this world. It must come from God. And it says the Father will honor us. We will celebrate this. We will enjoy this. We will grow in this honor for all eternity. My friends, it does not get any better than this. Let us pray. Father, we know, we admit that this verse is tempting. It is so difficult. This passage is so difficult for us. We want to be at home in this world. But as your people, as your Christians, you have made us for eternity. You have made us for glory. You have made us for a sinless existence. So, Father, I pray that you will protect us from seeing this world, seeing now as the ultimate, and that we will see this world as the means to make investments into eternity, make investments into people, make investments into sharing the gospel, sharing your love, being the hands and feet of Christ. Father, that is what we ask, that you will give us that heart attitude. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.